joining us, uh, a very special guest who we're very excited to welcome to the show, uh, the Essex and England legend, Mr. Graham Gooch. Welcome, Graham. Yes, good evening, Darren. Nice to speak to you. <laughs> and you, as always. Um, I can call you a legend because I've seen on the Essex uh, social media page today they've been asking but they've done a big profile of yourself as uh, as an Essex legend and um, they've been pitching you against Sir Alistair about who's the greatest Essex player of all time all right <laughs> I know where my vote he's a, bit, he's a bit quicker between the wickets these days <laughs> well we were talking about beep test the other week and uh, he's still the king of the bleep test at Essex David Masters was telling us how good he is Yes, um, he's always been very fit from when he uh, first came on the staff, ooh, way back in about 2003. Uh, he was always up front there, and um, he's kept his fitness, he's, he's kept his shapes, not putting on any weight, and uh, fortunately for Essex, he's still playing brilliantly. He is. He, he hasn't seemed to have tailed off at all, has he, even since he sort of stepped back from the England role. He's still... Everything's still there. He doesn't seem to have, uh, have slackened off at all. No, he, well, he's a consummate professional. You know, he's, he, he's built his reputation on the way he works at his game, his determination, his strength of mind. All those things come together with Alistair. He's uh, supremely talented as well. He's improved his technique down the years. He's improved his range of strokes. And um, he still goes out there. And, you know, whatever you say about Alistair, he, he provides scores that wins matches for the teams he plays for. He did it as, as a rock for England for well, well over a decade, as we know. Um, and uh, now he's continuing to do it for Essex uh, in the county championships, helped us to two titles in, in three years. And um, he's, you know, he's a perfect player to provide a platform for your team. You got a few words about Dave Masters, who was on last week. He was another stalwart of Essex um, over the last... Uh when he retired, was it three years yeah, ago? Yeah, well, absolutely. He was much loved by the supporters. Um, he came to us from Leicestershire, I think, and yeah. he was in Kent, Kent in his early days. Obviously, lives just across the water in Dartford, and, and I remember actually playing for Essex against Kent at Dartford. At, I think it was Hesketh Park, if yeah, I remember. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, it wasn't the most salubrious of changing rooms, <laughs> if I remember, but... Uh, it was always a great battle, Essex of Kent, and, and, and when David came to Essex, you know, he's the sort of guy that, um, you know, put everything on the line for the club, you know, he ran in all day long, you know, he's a real workhorse of a player, got his rewards, wasn't the quickest bowler, but, you know, moved the ball around a lot and bowled in immaculate length of line all day long, and, um, you know, he, his record was, um, you know, second to none for Essex from the, in the time he was there and he was much loved by all their supporters yeah I think also it was noted how much he did off the field as well he was he always had time for the supporters and uh, and, and club events and uh, you know he, he sort of wore the badge with pride I thought yeah I mean I, I think that's an important part in county cricket you know especially for Essex because you know we're a family club we've always have been and we value our our members, our supporters, our sponsors, every, every, all our fans who, who've been involved with the club for many, many years. Um, and, and that's very important. And it's very important for the players to engage with those supporters. It, it's always been that way since, since I've been there, you know, for, for many, many years, since the early 70s. And um, it, it's nice that they can, that the supporters can have a relationship with the players. Mm. Graham, it's Brett here. Um how are you doing? One of the things the club's always done is great charity work um, throughout the time, and especially, I know you've been pushing it a lot more 
Um, you become a bit of an ambassador for the club and on that front and you do a lot of great work. Uh, but you're also involved with the club with our, the latest thing that we are all involved with, which is the... Um Only in a very small way, yeah. I mean, I, I think the... Um the plaudits and the salutes should go to the um, um, our fan at Cram down in East London, where I was brought up. Um, he, he, along with others, uh, uh, Saffron Kitchen is the name of the restaurant, and uh, Iman Channel, which is an Asian channel, uh, have got together with some other supporters, and um, the restaurant uh, has produced meals, hundreds of meals over the last few weeks for hospitals in and around East London and Essex. And um, uh, Simon Harmer, Tom Wesley, Varun Chopra, to name the three, mm-hmm. uh, and others uh, have been down at the restaurant the last few weeks, last three weeks, I think, helping pack the, uh, the, the food parcels and things into big call boxes. And then the way I got involved, really, is, is very in a small way. Myself and my partner, Julio, uh, yesterday we delivered all some of these food parcels, you know, I think about 75 in a big call box, to the Princess Alexandra Hospital in, in Harlow, and then we went on to Broomfield to deliver some food as well, it's the same as we did last week. So we're only involved in a small way, but it's the people who provide the food who um, should get all the, all, all the thanks, really, because they're providing this much-needed uh, help for uh, hard-working NHS staff in all our hospitals in our area. I still think it's great that the impact that Figures such as yourself and, uh, and and the guys that you mentioned, Simon, Tom, and and uh, and Varen, um, it does help. The look I, I saw some of the pictures on social media that Essex have put up of uh, of you guys helping out. Just to see the look on people's faces is 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 just as important. And I think it's it's not to be underestimated the the impact of having yourselves and the effort that you guys make to be involved. It does certainly have an effect. Well, it's just, it's just a small, you know, small thing for us, really. But um, I have to say that the um, the staff of the hospitals that, you know, in, in the two weeks that we've done it um, are very appreciative, very grateful that we are thinking of them because they're the people on the front line. They're the ones who are providing the essential care for people who are less well off than us and who have fallen ill. Um, with, with many ailments as well as the you know this this sort of deadly current uh, coronavirus mm-hmm. and um you know we we i met nurses at broomfield that you know some of them have been working for 17 days flat out without a day off oh. you know so um, they're putting in the real effort and they're the ones that should uh, should get all the rewards really i think essex though uh, you know coronavirus aside have, have for a long long time been very supportive of the nhs now area and uh, Brett and I went along um, last Christmas, as, as you guys get to do every Christmas, to go to the Broomfield Hospital and uh, visit a few of the wards and mingle with the staff and just try and yeah. provide a bit of Christmas cheer. So I think from Essex's point of view, they cannot be accused of jumping on any kind of a bandwagon here because you've been doing it consistently as a club for a very long time. And I think uh, it's, it's really commendable um, that Essex interact with the community in the way they do. Well, we'd, we'd like to think we have close ties with lots of organisations, you know, in uh, in and around Essex and East London. And certainly, I mean, you might remember because before Broomfield Hospital, uh, Chelmsford and uh, East Essex Hospital, I think it was called, still partly there, yeah. uh, was on the edge of the ground. That's right. Um, uh, on, on, the, on the far side from the pavilion, um, on the London Road, really. And the, actually, it was quite handy if you got hit on the finger because you could <laughs> go across there and have an X-ray straight away. 
I quite often remember quite a lot with a lot of big West Indian fast bowlers who was playing county cricket in those days. We just played just to just to detract, divert very quickly. I just played an old reggae record called Cricket, Lovely Cricket, and it mentioned a few of the old boys. You you faced pretty much all of those uh, hostile fast bowlers. Who was the, in your mind, who was the quickest or the most dangerous that you faced down those years? Um, well, I mean, through the late 70s, um, which uh, Andy Roberts was really the first of the sort of uh, batch of fast bowlers that dominated world cricket over the next, um, I, I would say, 15 years or so, uh, maybe a little bit longer. Um, you know, culminating probably with the Ambrose and Walsh era mm-hmm. really sort of ended the dominance, I would say, of West Indies fast bowlers over the Test Arena. Uh, Andy Roberts was first, and, and then he was joined by Michael Holden and Colin Croft, Joel Garner, obviously, and, and then in, in between, you know, people like Ian Bishop, obviously Malcolm Marshall, who... Um, Look, they're all, they all could bowl fast on their day and, and they all were consistently quick. And, and, and what you remember, Darren, is not what I remember. He's not particularly a, uh, a bowler who was the quickest, you know, over a period of time. You, 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 you remember, really remember a particular match and whatever. And I would say Patrick Patterson was the quickest bowler in my face, Jamaica 1986. Yeah. Uh, his test debut. Now, in no way, uh, no disrespect to Patrick, he wasn't the best fast bowler, West Indian fast bowler I played against, and, and that, that accolade would, would easily go to Malcolm Marshall. He was my number one. Yeah. Um, you know, he had all the attributes, but we'll come to it. But on that day at Sabina Park in 1986, um, uh, Patrick Patterson making his debut, I mean, that's probably the one and only time in my career where I thought, the bowler, this bowler could hit me and I couldn't really protect myself, you know, because normally you think you get your hands in front of your face or your body or whatever and you might fend it off and whatever, but this particular day, um, he was rapid, as they say. You were very, very good at handling it. I remember your your good mate, Jeffrey Boycott, wasn't quite such a fan of the quickies, was he? Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of comment about Jeffrey avoiding uh, uh, Dennis Lilly and... Jeff Thompson in 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 1974-5 in Australia. I couldn't comment on that. Mm-hmm. I made my debut for England, obviously after that. But all I can say on the tours where uh, I went with Jeffrey against fast bowling against that bowling attack, I I said you know uh, Roberts, Garner, Holding, and Croft. Um, he was a very brave player and he was a brilliant player and he's certainly been my favourite opening batsman yeah. to bat with. So. Um, I, I'm in the school, he's a good friend, and also he was a brilliant cricketer as well. So I don't subscribe to the fact that uh, he had tried to avoid fast bowling, because when you played against the West Indies, there was no end to get up, I'm afraid. No, that's T- right. Talking of playing against the West Indies, we've got to mention that knock of yours, the unbeaten 154. Headingley, Headingley always seems to be a famous place for England yeah, test does. innings, doesn't it? It does. Um, well, I have to say, in, in, in my early um, excursions to Headingley, playing for England, prior to sort of 1991, you know, through the 80s, really, um, it was not a favourite place for me because, <laughs> um, the, you know, the, the overhead conditions at Headingley play uh, a huge part on, on, on how, how conditions are going to be and how the wicket is going to behave. Generally, if the sun was out, you know, you could have pretty good conditions for batting. If it was overcast, 
it could be a bit of a, a bowler's paradise. And of course, uh, also, it sort of you know, made you feel a little bit on edge. You know, we used to practice on the outfield, um, had nets on the outfield, like like you know, um, in front of the old pavilion, and uh, used to get all these Yorkshire League bowlers, um, James Middlebrook, who played for us for you know a long time. His dad, Ralph, I remember, was one of the net bowlers because he was quite a good club cricketer used to come in and bowl to you in the nets, you know, on the days before the test, and the ball used to jag around everywhere on these green wickets. And um, you never felt, I, I never felt confident when I went into the match <laughs> because you always felt there was a ball with your name on it. So um, fortunately for me, um, I exercised those bad thoughts uh, in 1991. And it, it's always nice to provide a score that helps your side win the game. So that was nice. It's a very different ground headingly now to what it was then as well. It's completely, it looks completely different. Oh, absolutely. They, they've rebuilt, I haven't seen it uh, in the flesh, so to speak, but uh, they've rebuilt the football stand end. There's a bit of slope on the ground. Um, when, when I went there, it was, it was the, not the original pavilion, but the, there was a small, small like club-type pavilion on one side of the ground. That's that right. Deep square leg. That's all gone now. Then they went to changing the football stand end, and now, of course, they've got another new pavilion now um, at the top end of the ground. I can't remember what it's called now. There's a big sort of green building yeah. which was built in conjunction with the university up there at Leeds. Um, so it has changed completely. But, I mean, um, the Yorkshire crowd were not short of a few comments when they came <laughs> up there, that was for sure. <laughs> and, of course, if we're talking Headingley, you were... You had a very good view of uh, Mr. Botham's Headingley antics in 1981, didn't you? <laughs> well, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's a folklore match now. Um, people arguing now or, 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 you know, discussing whether Ben Stokes's knock at Headingley was superior to Ian's back in 81. Difficult to say, really. I would say that there was more pressure on Ben Stokes, with, oh. without a doubt. Because if you look back at this match in 81... When Ian entered entered the crease, um, you know we, we, we followed on, and we, it wasn't going well for us at all. You know we, we were going down. You know every Christian yeah. knows when you're on the, the wrong end of it. And when Ian went in, you know he he decided to throw the bat quite a bit, and um, you know because it, it was a sort of a lost cause. And he got to fifty, and he grew in confidence, and the Australi Australians got. Um, more and more frustrated. They tried to bowl quicker and shorter. And Graham Dilly came in and, and he kept Ian company. I think he got 50, actually. Uh, and then Chris Alt came in after that with him and got 20-odd not out, I think. And, um, you know, you can legislate for someone playing like Ian did, throwing the bat, taking all the risks, you know, to get 50, 60, 70 even, but not 100 and... Um, what was it? I think 148 or something, wasn't it? Yeah, something, yeah. something like that. Anyway, and um, you know, it was the most amazing innings. And of course, the scoreboard flashed up. You know, the odds for England to win 500 to That's one. Right. Of course, there's the great story about Dennis Lilly and Rodney Marsh sending their bus driver around to the one Ladbrokes tent on the ground or whatever, <laughs> or to put a tenner on it in a two-horse race. They thought it was a good bet. <laughs> never thinking that obviously they were going to win that Australia were going to win and of course on that last day you know God rest his soul Bob yeah. Willis couldn't get on at first Mike Brilly wouldn't put him on he put him on bowling up the hill at the football stand in which was not Bob's end really and it, it all changed really when 
you know, they had, they had a, I'm not saying it's a crossword, but, you know, Bob thought, give me a go at the, you know, at the, at the, the other end, you know, down the hill. And he did, and the rest is history. And, of course, what you probably don't know, Darren, Brett, is that the Aussies, when they were 50 for one, which they were, chasing about 130, was it? Yeah, Something like that. yeah. Um, they filled their bath in the old pavilion with, with champagne, you know, <laughs> ice and champagne. And, and Ian Botham and Bob Willis were the ones who drunk all that champagne. <laughs> what, what was it like at the, yeah, do you actually, at the time when that starts going on, do you think to yourself, hello, we're onto something, you know, or was it just as, as surreal as it was for the rest of us? Uh, I think, I think at first, when you're protecting such a small score, you think you might have a chance um, if you get early wickets, okay? If you knock two or three over in the first five or six overs, mm -hmm. okay, you, uh, and the side are 24 or three, you think a bit of panic might set in and you might have a chance. But when they were 50 for one, and that's when Bob sort of started to come in from down the hill, uh, um, the Kirkstall Lane End, I think it's called, um, uh, you know, he got one wicket. Of, okay, nothing, nothing in your mind as the field inside changes too much, and then another one. When they get to three, four down, then you think, hang on, there might be a little bit of chance. Of course, the flip side of this is in the in the opposition dressing room, in their dressing room. I wouldn't say there'd be panic, but then the, then the worry starts to set in. If you see what I mean. Watching the television yeah. pictures of that, and I can remember at the time um, seeing it on the TV. Mr. Willis was in an absolute zone of concentration and sense of purpose. I mean, even at the end, when he sort of took the winning wicket uh, and he sort of wheeled away and sprinted off the pitch, he was still in this sort of his his own zone of well, concentration or whatever. The word you're looking for is in a trance, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was in a trance. He was like not not with us. Mm. He, he was in a in his own little world, all wrapped up, and he, and even every time he took a wicket, I saw some of the replays the other day. Every time he took a wicket, he went back and put another. If you noticed that, another short sleeve sweater on, took it off the umpire, and uh, you could see by his eyes he was looking down, he, and he was just trying to, I don't know, maintain this trance-like state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, all was, we were all tapping him on the back, you know, and he, he wasn't really engaging. He was like. Uh, you know, he was a man possessed. Oh, it was, it, it, one of one of sports, un, you know, unquestionably greatest moments. And uh, absolutely, yeah, it was. Uh, I can still remember, you know, watching it um, on TV at the time. Yeah, and just, um, 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 you know, obviously they'll be mentioning the Ben Stokes in in the same breath because I remember I was up in Norfolk last summer. We were driving um, along North Norfolk coast and listened to it on the radio and. You know, you think, well, you know, there is a chance when Johnny Bairstow was there and the wickets start to go down and, you know, it's going to be a great effort. We're just going to fall short here. You know, yeah. he's going for his shots all the time. Ben Stokes, and he's taking on the fielders. He's not. He's trying to farm the strike a little bit, but not, not too much. And then when it gets down to the last man, who was no mug, I have to say, Jack Leach, because he... He, he he got what did he get ninety odd earlier in the season? Yeah, he, uh, yeah, against uh, Ireland. Night watchman against uh, Lords. Yeah, um, so he can hold up an end, um, but then he then he sort of protected him a little bit, and he's thinking seventy was it seventy or something? Oh, there's no chance of going seventy yeah. for last week. That's hell of a lot of runs. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, and it all got to be scored by one man, 
And, yeah. you know, because, you know, they're going to have the field set back for Ben Stokes. And, you know, the you know, Jack Leach is going to face, well, if he farms a strike, he'll face one, two balls, maybe an over. Um, you know, he's not going to score any. So it was, it was a miraculous performance, amazing performance. Well, it was good. So do you think, what do you think, we'll see any cricket this summer? You're hoping it's, it, you know, it's just going to be um, a strange one, isn't it? Well, I'll, I'll be hopeful, but I mean, we are completely dependent on the, uh, you know, the, the, the situation with this virus, aren't mm. we? And, and how, how we, we as a country and other countries get, um, you know, a handle on what's happening now. Uh, the ECB, as I, as I understand it, are meeting today, and, and that they're trying to probably go. They're probably going through likely scenarios. They, they will certainly want to try and get some of the T20 and some of the international cricket. I would have thought on. So they'll be looking at scenarios like where we're going to play these matches. Um, I think one of the the big driving factors will be um, can we get any sort of meaningful cricket on for our broadcaster so they can broadcast to um you know the wider community and maybe show it on free to air or whatever mm-hmm. um you tell me but I, I can't see the government relaxing mass gatherings situation that'd be the last thing they're gonna yeah, yeah. let down so and that, that applies to the football as well i would say yeah. so behind yeah. closed doors i suppose is a possibility how that will take place and what form that will take who knows but um i don't think sitting here now you know we can be that hopeful um depends how how the thing you know we're not going to go from the lockdown situation we're in now to everything being normal it's going to be a drip feed effect isn't absolutely it? think so wouldn't you? i did touch earlier on uh, in the program we were just discussing and um it's testament to the management at Essex for, of the committee, the chairman and the CEO of the financial prudence that has been exercised over the last few years. That means that um, Essex aren't in a precarious situation as a club, as a business, if you like. Um, so you, you, Essex can weather this storm, it looks like. Well, I mean, Essex has always been a club, you know, since we had the successful period, late 70s, all through the 80s. They've, they've tried to keep their finances in order. We, we've never really been in debt. We've always been in the in the black. Obviously, us, like other clubs, need the money from from the centre, um, you know, to help make ends meet. But we, you know, with the two championship victories in the last three years and the T20 victory, you know, our you know support both through members, fans, corporate support sponsors and all that sort of thing has been very good so um you know we are very grateful to our supporters always have been they've been very loyal they've been very supportive and they appreciate the style of cricket we've always tried to play and entertain and um you know we'd like to think that um we try and take care of them at the same time if we can well, you know, we're big supporters of Essex and, uh, you know, I think as we've uh, established through this conversation that um, the club is uh, to be applauded for the behaviour off the field, the results on the field uh, and really um, the, the success is, is fully and thoroughly deserved from our point of view. Well, that's very kind of you to say. And, um, and you, uh, before we let you go, um, how are you uh, getting on with this lockdown period? Are you keeping yourself busy? I'm obviously, you're doing this... Uh, uh, well, we, 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 we're 
we count ourselves one of the lucky ones. We, uh, we've got a, like a decent garden and there's fields at the back of us, you know, going down to Ingotstone. So we walk across the fields, we walk around there, we, we, we walk down to the farm shops sometime, at, sometimes at Brentwood and sometimes at Galleywood and pick up some, you know, vegetables by combining a walk to go to the shop. So, um, yeah. I mean, I can't complain really, you know, there's a lot of people a lot worse off than us and, you know, we, we think of them and we, you know, our thoughts are with them. So, um, yeah, we, we were surviving, not a problem really. We just, hopefully everyone stays safe, everyone, you know, adheres as best they can to things they need to do in this situation and, and we get back to some form of normality as soon as we can. But I think that's going to be quite a while. Yes, I think so. Graham... Absolute pleasure and a privilege to have you on this evening. Many thanks for giving us um, your time and, uh, uh, and, uh, and and a couple of fantastic stories actually as well. So um, well, always, uh, always, you know, many many thanks. Well, can I say you know thanks to you as a supporter of Essex for um, you know being there for the club when when they need it, and thanks to the radio station um, for highlighting you know what Essex tried to do and supporting our cricket and. Uh, Hopefully, we can give the people of Essex, East London, East Anglia, uh, something to cheer about, maybe, hopefully, somewhere near the end of the summer. 